You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. This Good Friday sermon is titled, The Serpent and the Cross. And it's taken from a conversation that Jesus has with a very prominent Jewish rabbi named Nicodemus. We looked at a part of this conversation a few weeks ago in my sermon, Blowing in the Wind. And we're going to look at a little snippet of this conversation again in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Let's look at it together. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. One of the most mysterious metaphors of the cross is Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. And so before we go any further, I need to revisit this story with you so that it will be fresh in our minds. It goes all the way back towards the beginning of the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. It involves the nation of Israel. They've just been set free from bondage where they were enslaved in Egypt for some 400 years. And God intervenes on their behalf and through the leader Moses, he leads them out of Egypt across the Red Sea on dry ground. And now they're on their long, long journey out of Egypt towards the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, but it's taken a long time. The children of Israel, they're kind of like the kids in the back seat of the car. Are we there yet? And they start getting impatient. And in their impatience, they begin groaning and complaining against God, even to the point where they begin questioning God's goodness and accusing God of not being faithful to them, maligning God's character. And they're saying things like, why did we ever leave Egypt in the first place? Well, because you were slaves and your lives were miserable. But they had forgotten that. Why did we ever leave Egypt in the first place? And then they say, and I'm I'm quoting this, they say, we hate this horrible manna. That was the bread from heaven that God literally fell out of the sky every day for free. And they're groaning and they're complaining against God. They're maligning God's character, questioning God's good intent towards them. We should have never left Egypt. We wouldn't be out here following this God. We wouldn't be out here eating this horrible food that falls out of the sky for free every day. And it's about that time where snakes begin to crawl out of nooks and crannies. And these snakes begin biting those mumblers and grumblers and complainers. These venomous snakes begin biting the Israelites. And now they're poisoned. They're starting to fall sick and some of them are dying. And so they rush over to Moses and they say, Moses, you've got to intercede for us. You've got to pray. You've got to go talk to God about this snake business. And so Moses does. He prays, talks to God about it. And God says, here's what we're going to do. You're going you're gonna to make a, 
bronze replica of a snake. Now, you're going to have to stick with me on this. This is a crazy story. But you're going to make a bronze replica of a snake, and you're going to put it on a pole, and you're going to lift it up high in the midst of the entire Israelite camp. You're going to hold it up high so everyone can see it. And whoever's been bitten by one of those venomous snakes, if they will look upon that bronze serpent on the pole, they'll be healed. And so here's how the story concludes in Numbers chapter 21, verse 9. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. It's a strange story, isn't it? It's okay to say so. Let's try to unpack this story a little bit. Let me see if I can help you a little bit with this one. It begins with sinners sinning. Sinners complaining and groaning against God, maligning God's character, questioning and accusing God, really blaming God, accusing God of not being good and kind and faithful to God's people. Why did we ever leave Egypt? Why do we have to eat this horrible manna? There's not enough of, of it. Uh, and they're complaining and they're groaning and they're maligning God's character. And about that time, these venous, venomous snakes begin to bite the people. Well, these venomous snakes seem to me to be representative of the people in their sin. Because the people's sin was in their mouth. They had poison. They had venom in their mouths. They had this murmuring and grumbling. We should go back. We're sick of this man and we get the same amount every day. And you know, the psalmist later on, he's going to talk about how the poison of the asp is under the tongue. And these, these Israelites, they're a picture of that. They're spewing out this venom of complaining and maligning the God's character, accusing God of not being good and faithful to them. And so these venomous snakes among them, biting them, seems to be representative of who they've become and what they are. In other words, the venomous snakes represent their own sin. And so when a bronze replica is made, let's say it this way, of their sin, it's lifted up and they can see it. They can see their sin reflected back to them. Their sin is lifted up and made plain. And yet when they see it, they are healed. Notice that they're healed and not pardoned. Although presumably they were pardoned as well. But what they really needed in this moment was not simply a legal pardon. What they needed was a physical healing. If somebody were to show up and say, hey Israelites, I've got good news. I talked to God and God's going to pardon you of your grumbling and complaining. They would have said, that's wonderful, but I just got bit by a venomous snake. What I need is to be healed. And so what happens when the bronze serpent was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness is that these snake-bitten, sinning Israelites, they look upon it and they were healed. It's a healing story. Well, that's the story of Moses and the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And now, Jesus is having a late-night conversation with Rabbi Nicodemus, and he chooses to use this bizarre story from way back in the book of Numbers about Moses lifting up a bronze snake, and he uses it as a mysterious metaphor to depict his own crucifixion and the saving effect it will have upon those who look upon it. Look at Jesus' words again in John 3, 14 and 15. 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And so Jesus has this conversation with Rabbi Nicodemus. And you know, rabbis are experts at using the Scriptures metaphorically. No one knows or understands how to use metaphor like a Jewish rabbi. And here you have two Jewish rabbis having a conversation late at night. And Jesus uses this metaphor. He compares cryptically. He refers to his own impending crucifixion. And he compares this crucifixion to what Moses did with this bronze serpent. And what happened? Well, when sinners who were sick because of their sin. Let me say that again. They were sick because of their sin. When they saw the serpent, they were healed. Yes, they were probably also pardoned as well, but what they really needed was healing. In other words, those who were bitten by the venomous snake in the wilderness, they didn't need a lawyer. They needed a doctor. They needed a doctor, not a lawyer, a doctor. Now, if you'll bear with me for 20 seconds, let me give you a tiny little dose of church history. Here on the western side of Christianity, and when I say western side of Christianity, I'm talking about Roman Catholicism and I'm talking about Protestantism. That's the western side of Christianity as opposed to the eastern side of Christianity, which is Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Egyptian Coptic, etc. But here on the western side of Christianity, we've been on this trajectory it's a trajectory that we can trace back all the way to Augustine, 1,600 years ago. And then it got picked up with Anselm in the 11th century. And then it got really intensified in the 16th century with Martin Luther. And then it got taken to the nth degree with Calvin. But we've been on this trajectory, and the trajectory is this. It's the idea that our primary problem that we as human beings have with God, the primary problem that we have is one of our legal guilt before God. It's like a courtroom framework. And our problem is that we have a guilty standing before God and what we need is pardon. Now hear me tell you this, there's truth to that. There's absolutely truth to that. Paul even uses that exact analogy in, in Romans. So there is a sense in which we are guilty and we, we, um, we have a debt, a legal debt that needs to be pardoned. Absolutely. But this idea has been so emphasized and I would just overemphasized to the point that we've really lost sight of how Jesus spoke about sin. Now, this was a mistake that they never made on the eastern side of Christianity. Now, they don't have everything right by any means. But on this particular issue, I think they're right on target. They place a much stronger emphasis on sin being a kind of disease that needs to be healed. Not a kind of crime that needs to be pardoned. Because our primary problem with God is not just that we're guilty. It's that we're sick. And so salvation is not just something that happens to our status. Salvation is something that happens to us. We've been bitten. We've been poisoned by our sin. 
And what we really need is not just a legal pardon. What we need is healing. We need to be made well. But here in the West, we, we've, um, we've become accustomed to speaking of salvation primarily in terms of a legal pardon rather than in terms of therapeutic healing. And I think that's a mistake. I know this much. In Jesus' life and ministry, he acted far more like a doctor than he ever did a lawyer. I mean, when I read the Gospels, I don't see Jesus ever acting like a lawyer. But he was always acting like a doctor. He gets accused all the time. Why, why are you always eating with these sinners? You're always eating with these low lowlifes, these dregs of society, tax collectors, these horrible sinners. Why are you always eating with these people sharing meals with them, Jesus? He says, because the sick are in need of what? A lawyer? No. They need a doctor. They need a physician. He saw sinners as those who are sick in need of a doctor, not criminals in need of a pardon. He saw them as sick in need of a doctor. So our main problem, hear me carefully the way I said that, our main problem, not our exclusive problem, our main problem is not our legal standing before God because God is a merciful Father, not a cruel and capricious judge. Our main problem is that we are poisoned by our sin and we need to be healed. We need to be made well. Because if that's not dealt with, listen to me, we can be pardoned and still be sick. And so in his conversation with Rabbi Nicodemus, Rabbi Jesus brings up this old story about Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness and all who looked upon it were healed. And Jesus quotes the story to Nicodemus to explain to him, that's what I've come to do. This is who I am. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, all who looked upon it were healed. So also when the Son of Man is lifted up and crucified, all who look upon me and believe upon me and orient their lives around me, they will be healed. They will be made well. They will be saved. I want to show you on the screen uh, a painting of the crucifixion. And we're going to leave this painting up for the rest of our sermon here. I'm not going to go on much longer. This is my favorite artistic depiction of the cross painted 600 years ago before Columbus came to the Americas. Andrea Montagna, an Italian painter, it's beautiful. And you know, the, the, the big artistic challenge of any artist who's going to try to depict, try to depict the cross, I mean, you understand the cross is the most depicted scene in the entire history of visual arts. No scene has been depicted more than the crucifixion of Christ. And the big challenge of any artist who's going to attempt to depict the cross is that you have to hold two things in tension. On one hand, you've got to, you've got to portray the catastrophe of the cross. It's an absolute catastrophe. And on the other hand, you got to portray the beauty of the cross because it's both things and they're both inextricably linked. It is a catastrophe and it is unfathomable beauty. Now, this particular painting, this piece of art, I can assure you this is far, far more beautiful than the actual historical event of Jesus' crucifixion. The actual brutality and gruesomeness of the crucifixion would probably be unbearable to look at for us. And you see, the, the role of the artist 
is not to try to depict as accurately as possible how it actually looked. What the artist is trying to do is help us to see beyond what cannot be seen with the eye of empiricism. The artist wants to help us see what can only be seen with the eyes of faith. And if you're, if you're an artist depicting the crucifixion, you ought to err on the side of beauty. But the cross is both of these things. It is utter catastrophe. It's an absolute disaster of human behavior. And it is the quintessential example of what beauty is. And so we need to focus on both of those things. And I want to talk about those two things just before we close. First of all, we need to talk about the catastrophe of the cross. Before we focus on anything else, before we focus on the beauty of the cross, we first need to acknowledge that it is an absolute catastrophe. We're talking about the violent lynching of an innocent man, for one thing. Never forget that. But it's not just an innocent man. It's God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh, who comes into our world, into our system. He's perfect. He's innocent. He's eternal beauty. He's eternal love. Sinless. And He comes into our world and what we did, what our system did, and we're all complicit. We're all complicit in it. But when God walked among us as one of us and we flung Him onto a cross and nailed Him to it and tortured Him and killed Him, that's an absolute catastrophe. That's what our world, that's what our system, that's what our way of operation did to a perfect, innocent, sinless man. The God-man Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ. And as such, it is a damning indictment on the way the world is presently run. It's a damning indictment on our system, on our world. It was our sin that crucified Jesus. And I mean that literally. When you're looking at this scene, when you're looking at the scene that this represents, what you're seeing is a picture of our addiction to greed. You're seeing a picture of our obsession with blame. You're seeing a picture of our faith in violent power, among many other things. But this is what our addiction to greed, this is what our obsession with blame, and this is what our faith in violent power does to Jesus. We look upon it and we see a reflection of our own sin. Just as the ancient Israelites, when they looked upon that bronze serpent on that pole, they saw a representation of their own sin. In the same way, when we look upon the cross, we are coming to contact with this is the ugliness of human sin that put Jesus on the cross. We flung our sins into Jesus. When Christ comes into the world, He comes as one of us into our system of rivalry, our lust for power, of the powerful lording over the weak, an axis of power enforced by violence. He comes into what we call the world, but it's not the world as God imagined it. It's what we've made of the world. And when God in His innocence and His holiness and His purity comes among us, our system of which, of which we're all complicit, it does that to Him. And it's an absolute catastrophe. And once we see it, we can hate it and we can reject it and we can renounce it and repent of it and turn from it. When I look at the cross, when I gaze upon Jesus crucified on the cross, I can realize that if our prioritizing, if our system of prioritizing greed and power and violence does that to Jesus, then I hate that and I want to reject that and I renounce it and repent of it and turn from it that I might be free from it. 
So the cross is an absolute catastrophe, and we need to see it for the catastrophe that it is. But there's also beauty in the cross. At the cross, we see, yes, the catastrophe of human sin, but we also see the beauty of divine love. Because when the Son of God hangs upon that cross, He doesn't speak out in bitterness. You're all wrong. You're all guilty. Look at what you've done to me, you wretched sinners. He never speaks like that, although He could. And He'd be accurate. He'd be right. He'd be on target. It would be justified. It would be appropriate. And we would understand it. But He never speaks like that. In that bitterness. You, you all wretched sinners. Look at what you've done to me. He never speaks like that. In fact, what he says on the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hans Urs von Balthasar, he was a Swiss theologian in the 20th century. He wrote this sentence. It's one of the most beautiful sentences I've ever read. He says this, For being disguised under the disfigurement of an uncle's crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. What is God like? He's like that. What is God like when we spit upon him, when we lie about him, when we call him a blasphemer, when we jam a crown of thorns on his, heads, on his head, when we drive a, a nail through his hands and through his feet and we lift him up on a cross? What is God like? He absorbs it and he recycles it, not into retaliation, but into forgiving love and saving grace. God is like that. And that's good news. That's what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, we are seeing the perfect quintessential revelation of who God is. Unfathomable, beautiful love. And when we gaze upon the cross, not just with our eyes, but when we gaze upon it in our mind's eye, in our heart, and we allow uh, the cross to begin to form not only our thinking, but absorb into our heart, when we allow God's divine love to pour into us, we can be saved, we can be healed, we can be made well. For by His stripes we are what? Healed. By His stripes we are healed. The cross is a collision of catastrophe and saving grace. The cross is as ugly as human sin and the cross is as beautiful as divine love. And they collide at the cross, but it's not a contest of equals because in the end, love and beauty win. As we look upon Christ crucified, believing that what we see is God's co-suffering love in Christ, the healing begins. So just look at the cross. Look at it. We're all complicit. We see our sin. But we also see the beauty of God's saving grace and His forgiving love. We see the venom and the poison of the serpent. But here we also see the antidote. And we begin to be healed. And we begin to become the kind of people who can bear the image of God in the world. And as we do so, the world begins to be saved, begins to be healed, begins to be made right. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes upon Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.